Welcome back, everyone, to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast, Season 3, Episode 7. In this episode, Jason shares his perspective on the unique challenges men face with mental health issues, exploring how his childhood relationships impacted his self-image that led to problems in his adult relationships. He also shares how he has been educating himself and speaking out so that men in particular become more informed and aware of the impact of mental health on their quality of life, and how he models healthy and supportive relationships with his children. Please keep in mind that this interview is for informational purposes only and it is not a substitute for professional counseling services. If you feel that you would like to speak to a licensed mental health professional, please visit our website at www.kellymentalhealth.com for more information or you can call us at 807-767-3888. Welcome to the Kelly Mental Health Podcast. I'm Linda Kelly. And today I have a very special guest, Jason Wellwood, and we are talking men's mental health. So Jason Wellwood was raised in a small town in Southern Ontario, spent 10 years living in Toronto, and then moved to Thunder Bay almost 17 years ago. For much of his time in Thunder Bay, Jason has been involved with radio and even spent some time co-hosting a music-based show on Shaw Cable 10. He's a father of three incredible boys, a coffee lover, and a self-professed music junkie and a radio nerd. Now, I did not write that, but apparently you're going to own that part of yourself, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining me today. So when I put out a call online just to say, hey, anybody who wants to talk men's mental health, I want to talk to you. What made you reach out? Um, Honestly, Linda, it's been um, a long time coming for me. Uh, I've been, the last couple of years in particular, I've been Uh, talking a lot about my own mental health uh, with friends and uh, a little bit online. Uh, I find that there's still a whole lot of stigma attached to uh, talking about your mental health uh, out loud uh, on social media. So uh, I haven't been as vocal on social media as maybe I would like to be. But uh, as soon as I saw the post, I thought, you know what, now's the time. Uh, let's talk about it, uh, particularly right now. I mean, uh, there's a whole lot going on in the world with social media, with stigma, with COVID-19. Mental health is a big topic right now, and it's going to be for a long time. I I totally agree. Something that's become, I, I think, just more relevant over time as people start to realize that, you know, mental health itself is not just a series of the most severe mental illnesses, but mental health is a spectrum on which we all have a place. And, and not only that, but I mean, our place on that spectrum varies from day to day. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, you, you mentioned there's so much going on in the world today. Obviously, we're in the midst of a pandemic still. Uh, a lot of people kind of holding their breath to see some of these safety measures lifted, but then others feeling very stuck as in maybe we shouldn't be lifting them. They're afraid. How has the pandemic and its restrictions affected you? Uh, it, it's interesting. The, the first time around when we first went into lockdown almost a year ago, um, it didn't affect me too much, uh, at least in the outset. I was already spending a whole lot of time by myself uh, trying to kind of, uh, see where I was at, um, get myself into a a better, uh, mental and physical state and, uh, having to work from home. I spent the first three months, I guess, of the pandemic working from home and it didn't affect me a whole lot. 
but this time around, I think it's hit uh, most of us a lot differently. Uh, we had a little bit of freedom over the course of the summer, and even last year, uh, there was a lot of time where the sun was out. We could at least go sit on the front porch and have our morning coffee, that sort of thing. Uh, this time around, it's we've spent a lot of time indoors. We've spent a lot of time uh, inside our uh, our bubble. Uh, lots of parents spending more time with their kids than normal. Lots of uh, spouses uh, spending more time with each other than normal. And uh, for me, uh, I, again, spent a lot of time working from home and I really, really missed that human connection. I really missed uh, seeing my coworkers and uh, actually getting to speak out loud to other people, not just into a microphone every day or into my computer screen every day. And it's felt a lot more lonely this time around. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know what, I, I noticed that as well. I know we've talked about this on other episodes where uh, when the lockdown first came through or, or at least, you know, it was after March break last year, everybody kind of said, okay, let's do this. Like, let's hunker down. We're fine. You know, we're just, we'll enjoy our time at home. We'll bake bread. <laughs> yes. And then as it just continued to persist and, and it's like, okay, it's another two weeks. No, it's another month. Oh, the cases are climbing. Now everybody lock it down again. And it just seems never ending. And I, I'm definitely noticing the impact on people's overall wellness. And I'm seeing that reflected in social media as well. And, and I'm curious if you've seen the same thing. Oh, absolutely. Social media is, I'm, I'm seeing two, two different um, aspects of social media right now that have really been um, bothering me, I guess. On the one hand, you have people who are, um, getting very upset um losing it almost would be the the term i would use uh where every post every uh everything they're they're saying on social media is um this sucks i can't take this much longer when is this going to be over nobody's doing the right thing anymore uh nothing but complaints and then on the other side i'm seeing a million affirmations and a million uh people talking about uh it's okay there's a light at the end of the tunnel um there it will get better you will get better this will all be okay um but there doesn't seem to be any middle ground it almost seems like extremes on both ends right and, and I'm picking up, even just as you described that, I'm picking up a lot of desperation on both sides. Absolutely. Some yeah. people just, they, they don't want to, some people don't want to see that there's a light at the end of the tunnel because all they can see is the doom and gloom. And um, some people, all they want to see is the light at the end of the tunnel. They don't want to, um, I guess, do the work. They don't, they don't they're putting their um all of their faith and all of of their belief that everything will be okay but it's almost like they think every everything else will take care of them so they don't need to worry about anything right so there's sort of the the cynical uh, crowd almost a nihilistic crowd versus the toxic positivity crowd exactly so how does that affect you seeing those those extremes as as obviously you must be on social media a lot as we all are way too much um 
I have to take uh, for for my job, I spend a fair bit of time on social media, either reading posts or just looking to see what people are talking about so that um, I make sure that I'm talking about what's on everybody's mind. Um, and I have to take a break from it. Uh, there are some days where every post on my feed is either, again, it's one extreme or the other, and it makes me anxious. Um, it's too much of the of the toxic positivity makes me anxious. I just feel like, oh, I can't take any more affirmations. I can't take any more. This is all good. Uh, and, you know, 20 minutes later, an hour later, when I go back to see what might have shown up on my feed, uh, it's all doom and gloom. And I can't take that anymore either. So I think we spend, um, you know, spending so much time on social media, um, you know, as I indicated there, sometimes it's a short break, but I think a lot of us need to take much longer breaks from social media than we've been taking. You know, we all want that um, connection with other people, but sometimes that the connection, particularly over social media, isn't the best thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You're just, you're seeing really, you know, the place where people vent or yeah. you're seeing the very cultivated lifestyle and, and pictures of what they want you to see. So it's never really realistic. You know, the people I've learned as well, the people that are yelling and screaming the most are afraid and, and, you know, they're, they want to trust so badly, but it's just been so hard. And so then those people can come across as just sometimes really unlikable, but if you sit and talk to them and have a coffee with them, well, they're completely different people. Absolutely. 100%. And I think that goes for, um, somehow we've turned this into a conversation about social media, but I think that really, uh, that really goes for anything that happens on social media. I think it's really easy to be a keyboard warrior, um, to be a troll, to be um, nasty or angry over social media. But if you actually sit a lot of these people down and have a coffee, as you said, they're totally different. They're not necessarily, um, uh, they're not the people that they're portraying themselves to be over social media, whether it's the uh, everything's doom and gloom, everything's making me angry, I hate everyone, uh, or the I'm super happy and pumped up all the time and life is good. I find that a lot of people, uh, and I'm sure you have as well, a lot of people kind of actually tread that middle ground uh, when they're uh, in person with somebody. Mm hmm yeah, I think it's easier. And of course, that's, hey, I mean, that's where I'm at my best one on one, right? That's my job. That's, um, but it's, it's nice in those situations to sort of see the humanity in people. And that's one thing that the COVID uh, pandemic has taken away from a lot of us. Absolutely. Yeah, not being able to, I think that not being able to speak to somebody one on one, uh, whether it's, um, uh, at a coffee shop or hanging out at home, sitting around the campfire, uh, which I really miss, mm -hmm. um, really just uh, eliminates so much from who we are and who we always have been. I mean, sure, we're coming into uh, an era where uh, Zoom meetings and Teams meetings and talking to people uh, on FaceTime uh, seems to be the norm, but it just doesn't, even talking to somebody on, you know, one-on-one -on, -one on FaceTime just isn't the same. 
It's not the same as being in someone's presence, not the same as being um, able to read their body language or uh, if you want to get metaphysical about it, I guess, see their aura as they're talking to you. Um, because, you know, somebody who sits and relaxes with you in the same room or uh, across the campfire uh, is going to come across completely different as somebody who's uh, across a computer screen and you're only seeing their uh, you're only seeing their head and their facial expressions you're not necessarily seeing what their hands are doing or what their feet are doing um, you can't read that and sometimes that connection uh, that physical connection um, really speaks volumes about who that person is and who they are to you mm -hmm. right and that that ability to sort of read them or even uh, unconsciously sort of align yourself with them that's yep. being taken away Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So just kind of moving on to the, the mental health aspect. Um, mm. Obviously, you know, you've pointed out that mental health is, it's just becoming the talk of the town. Everyone seems to be more aware of it. And you mentioned uh, struggling with some anxiety. And I'm curious if you'd be willing to share, you know, how mental health issues have impacted you. Oh, absolutely. I'm more than happy to share. Uh, I'll be honest that probably the last last two years, I've learned more about my mental health uh, and about mental health in general um, than I ever learned. Uh, in my family, uh, just to give you a quick background, um, I was, uh, my mom was a single mom for the first seven years of my life. She was, uh, in retrospect, uh, an undiagnosed depressive and, um, and, and an alcoholic. So we didn't talk about feelings in my family. There was no talk about why uh, I felt the way I did. There was no talk about why mom drank all the time uh, and that sort of thing. And that carries over. If you don't talk to your family, if you don't talk to your kids about what's going on, and I, I don't mean that you need to have adult conversations with your six-year-old and start scaring them about the fact that you lost your job and that sort of thing. Um, but talking to your kids about emotions, making your kids feel safe, um, makes them feel safe as they get older. And I think a lot of us, um, men and women, uh, were raised in households where you where emotions were either bottled up or it was you went and uh, expressed your emotions in your bedroom by yourself. And that kind of, it, it hampers us and stunts us when, as we become adults. Um, I've had some pretty bad relationships over the last few years. Um, and, you know, owning my part in all of that, uh, a lot of it comes down to how I was raised and what I didn't learn about being in relationships. Um, I didn't realize that I actually suffered from anxiety because I didn't know what it was until the last few years. And dealing with that has been really eye-opening for me, knowing that this feeling uh, of uh, these thoughts and these feelings of helplessness and hopelessness weren't abnormal uh, and learning how to get myself out of that downward spiral has been pretty eye-opening. Uh, I've spent a lot of time, as I said, I spent a lot of time alone. 
the last little while. And that was um, for somebody who'd been in a, a uh, a marriage for 10 years and a relationship for a couple of years before that and after that being alone was very different uh it was very scary for starters but uh it i learned a lot about myself spending some time uh, reading a lot of uh books on self-help and getting counseling and therapy has been been pretty eye-opening mm-hmm. That's incredible that you've been able to, you know, do that self-exploration and even educate yourself. I, I think it, it's a big challenge for a lot of people that maybe don't have the opportunity to learn about this in the first place. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's, uh, Linda, you know that there's a million self-help books out there. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> if, if, you're, if, if you're looking for something um, to help you or for something that you think might help you, it's pretty easy to find. Um, my exploration actually started trying to understand what my partners were going through, um, what the people in my relationship were going through. I didn't really understand that this needed to be about me. And uh, through you know reading and uh, talking to to counselors, it really opened my eyes that, hey, you know what, this might be a little bit more about me and my mental health than I thought. And starting to learn what was affecting me and why I was affected has really guided things because you could read uh, a million books on anxiety and depression. But if that's not what you suffer from, if you are, I don't know, say, uh, uh, a love, maybe you're love addicted. Um, if you're not reading about what that is, because you don't know that that's what it is that you have, then that's not going to help. So you need that kind of guidance along there somewhere as well. Right. And that's right. If we, um, if, if we think about going to see, you know, a counselor, or a therapist, you know, someone that really knows their stuff, they might be able to point you in the right direction, or they might even be able to say, hey, maybe you might have this part wrong because there's a lot of people that struggle with anxiety that don't realize that anxiety is actually a symptom of depression yes what does anxiety look like on you uh on me um (laughs) i tend to shut down when i when i get anxious i shut down um i don't respond to i won't respond to emails or uh, text messages or phone calls, that sort of thing. Um, it becomes, uh, one thing that I don't know if I necessarily pride myself on it or not, but one thing is I've never, um, felt like I couldn't get up and, um, get through my day, you know, going to work, uh, looking after the kids, that sort of thing. But in terms of looking after myself, if I get super anxious, um, I, you know, I don't have the ability to do the dishes. I don't have the ability to, um, really hold a coherent conversation with a friend. Uh, I tend to wander off into my own head. And, um, interestingly, something that I didn't realize until very recently, um, I start to get, um, 
almost a numbness in my face as well, which is, uh, I've just was just told recently is a, uh, is a symptom of anxiety as well. Uh, and that's something that I didn't know. Um, I actually, uh, was, uh, so anxious very recently that I thought maybe something was wrong with my face and shaved my beard that I'd had for 20 years off to see if I could see any sort of, you know, lesions or marks or something, maybe something physical had happened to my face. Um, and no, it turns out that it was just a symptom of my anxiety that had uh, manifested itself. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Cause I mean, psychosomatic symptoms are, are definitely more rare, but they, of course they exist. And uh, a lot of that comes down to, you know, how, how sort of stiffly we're holding ourselves, how, how much tension we're holding in our bodies and, you know, all sorts of things. We, we basically were glitching out. Yes. That's a very good way of putting it. It's a very yeah. Minecraft way of putting it. <laughs> well, we've had a lot of discussions lately about how most of us are on survival mode and you can't just very easily switch to creative when, when you're just trying to survive. So yeah, yes, exactly. it affects, yeah, it affects our ability to, to sort of think in abstract ways. So uh, I was going to ask you as well, um, you mentioned, you know, with, with your mom having her issues, I'm curious if that, if her issues ever sort of put you in a, in a certain position of, of being sort of a caretaker. Oh yeah. 100%. Um, uh, when I was just to give you an example, I think it was about five. Uh, my mom used to uh, work at bars. Um, so a lot of the time I would have a babysitter in the evening while my mom was working. And one time in particular, I remember her bringing everybody from work home with her. So we had a two bedroom apartment and I woke up in the middle of the night to an apartment full of people and went looking for my mom because I don't know most of these people. Uh, some of them I knew, but not a lot of them. And there's my mom passed out in her bed. Um, but there's still a whole household of people. So I had to, at five years old, I was kicking people out of our apartment, um, you know, uh, holding my mom's hair back while she threw up the next day, that sort of thing. So uh, there's been, yeah, there was countless times where I was the caretaker and that kind of has definitely carried over into my adult life where I feel like I need to be the one taking care of everything. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, when you are cast into that role as a caretaker, very, very young, a lot of times we end up in relationships that are very similar, like that dynamic continues to exist. Absolutely. And, and part of the problem too, for me is um, as much as I want to be the caretaker and as much as I want to help, uh, sometimes that starts to breed resentment where you don't want where part of you doesn't want to be the caretaker all the time you want to uh, maybe be taken care of but you never feel like you can allow yourself to be in a position where you're taken care of mm -hmm. yeah absolutely you know one of the things I hear a lot from people is that the people who are typically the caretakers they become the most resentful for not being helped but they also have the hardest time accepting help Yep. Yeah. 100%. And then they, 
And then they're also often surrounded by people that are in need of help, right? Because, hey, you've always been the strong one. You're the guy to go to, to, you know, take care of stuff and you're solid. So everybody that's surrounding you depends on you and they don't know what to do when you need help. Right. <laughs> and it's hard for, and it's hard for me um, to tell people what I need. Um, you know, if uh, my partner was to say to me, hey, uh, when you're feeling anxious or when you're upset, what, what can I do to help you to calm you down? I would have a hard time expressing that. I would have a hard time telling them what I need, not even just in the moment, you know, out, outside of that, when things are good. Um, to me, it's like, oh, I don't know, we'll get, I'll, I'll get through it. Uh, and then in the moment, that's when it becomes bad. You know, if there is a need where, or a time where I do need to be calmed, or I do need to be soothed, or I do need to be helped, I don't really know how to express that because it's never been something that, and, you know, people don't ask that of kids, you know, people don't ask that of young adults. Uh, and again, if you've been the, the caretaker the whole time, then they just assume that you'll get through it too, because you always have. Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. And, and I, at least even from my own experience, once, if even, even if you just pointed out, you know what, I'm not doing so well, that in itself does give some relief. And then it's like, okay, yeah, I don't need you to do anything else. I just needed to say that. Yeah, absolutely. That rugged independence, right? That fierce need to be independent and not uh, burden anybody, but that can be very problematic. Absolutely. And I mean, that is um, a bit of a, a men's problem, but it's not just men who, who experience that as well. I mean, look at all the moms out there who, um, you've seen the ads, you've seen the, uh, the movies where, you know, I'm mom, I don't get sick, I don't have time to be, uh, you know, to have mom time or to have a breakdown, uh, because everybody else is depending on me. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and that rhetoric is definitely much more um, available today. It's much more, um, I don't want to say promoted, but it's much more well known. But I, I want to get back to what you said there. I mean, it being a men's problem, because it sounds like for a lot of men, you're expected to hold these roles and you're not expected to complain about it. Well, exactly. Um, I, uh, at one point I was given a book to read and there was a lot of stuff that I didn't really agree with in it. But one thing that did really speak to me was, um, at least maybe not so much now, but at the time when I was reading it, which would have been about the late nineties, I guess, um, there was a lot of expectation on men that just didn't make sense uh, when you put it all together. So um, for example, you know, men were expected to be the, the strong person who uh, went to work and, uh, brought home the paycheck to keep the household uh, financed, uh, was able to um, go off and fight wars if needed to be, uh, but at the same time was also being expected to be caring and open and honest and kind, but not talk about any of it 
at all. It was all just kind of, you know, stiff upper lip, very stoic about everything. And men didn't have problems. You know, if if you had an issue, you uh, went down to the bar and drank with the guys in the evening and um, then stumbled home later. And that was just kind of the expected uh, way to do things. Uh, and that, I mean, it just doesn't work. Um, any of it. I mean, it doesn't make sense when you put it all together like that. And it doesn't make sense when you take pieces apart either. We all need help. Uh, and we've all been, uh, you know, asking for help seems to be this big shameful thing, but it's not, uh, and it shouldn't be, um, you know, you know, as well as I do, and many people listening to this have, have heard this going out and ignoring your problems. is just going to make things worse. And, you know, we've been taught to keep things down and keep things hidden. And the more we keep things hidden, the worse it gets. Absolutely. And the problem too, I, I find is there is more awareness now and more, uh, we hear lots about, you should reach out, you have to say something. But I mean, half the battle is, as far as what I can see is, how are those messages being received when people do reach out? Absolutely. Um, it's too many people are doing it in silence. Uh, I think, um, if you look at somebody like take Robin Williams as an example, here was this guy who was loved by millions and millions of people. So many people, he made so many people laugh. Um, but he was so depressed and didn't know how to get help, didn't know how to ask for help and took his own life. Um, if he had reached out for help, if he had gotten the help that he needed, uh, would he still be here? Likely. Would he have um, been ridiculed for it? And um, would people have maybe, um, stopped going to see his movies or stopped watching his TV shows, maybe. But I'd really like to think that if more people like Robin Williams, like uh, Chris Cornell, uh, these people who are famous and struggling, if they actually talked about their problems and um, forced people to see, I, and I use the word forced in quotation marks, but um, you know, made it more visible for people that even if it looks like we've got it all together, we don't, um, that things might be received a little bit uh, more openly by, uh, and again, in quotation marks, regular people who are having these problems, um, that people are going to be more open and honest and receptive to, yeah, the, I'm more than willing to help you. You need, you need some help. I'm here. Um, and at the same time, you know, people are going to be more willing to ask for that help. Mm -hmm. Right. So, I mean, when you're, you're pointing out as well that there can be a disconnect uh, when people do speak out about this, where it's taken the wrong way or they are ridiculed for it. I, I mean, I flashback to even, you know, 2007 Britney Spears, right? How much ridicule she faced for what were clearly major, major mental health issues. Absolutely. And I mean, she's still going through that. Still, and yeah. you, you can you can see it in um, her 
her Twitter posts or her Instagram posts, she's still having a hard time and she's still getting ridiculed for it. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think our society is so hard on men for, for struggling with mental health issues, for not having it together? Because that's how we were raised, I think. I, it's, um, I guess, uh, a product of toxic masculinity. Um, we were raised by uh, generations, you know, not just one. This has been ongoing for a long time, um, where uh, you went and you fought the battle, or you. Um, built the house or you uh tended the farm and you went and you did that job and then you came home and you um procreated and then you got up the next day and did it all over again and you didn't complain and you didn't uh you didn't talk about how things were going at home you didn't talk about how um how much you didn't like your job and how it was crushing your soul and how you really wanted to be a poet or, you know, you really wanted to, uh, you'd rather be a dancer than a farmer or something like that. That These are things that we were taught. You don't talk about, you internalize and you, you hold on to that because that's just what men do. Right. And I noticed too, there seems to be so much pressure on men to just already know what to do, know how to do it. When the most, when most of us, me especially, usually feel, I still feel like I'm barely a teenager. I don't don't know what the hell I'm doing. (laughs) Right. So how does that, how does that affect you sort of, you know, being in that position, that role where everybody around you expects you to already know what to do? Uh, It's weird to be quite honest. It, It feels very weird and, and strange. Uh, I was just thinking today how I, at some points in my day, I feel like I'm in my twenties with no uh, idea what I want to be when I grow up. Uh, And other points in the day, I feel like I'm well into my eighties and can uh, barely recall a time where things, uh, you know, didn't seem so um, foreign to me. Um, having to you know have it together for the kids or have it together to talk about um, whatever at at work uh, can be a bit of a struggle sometimes you know we don't know what the future is going to to bring um, you know particularly right now with the pandemic Um, so it's hard to plan and if you're a planner that makes things really tough um but for me like right now i feel like um i feel kind of lost you know um i i want to be strong for my kids and when my kids are around i do the the best i can to be strong for them but at the same time i also want them to realize that it's okay to not be strong um you know, I am a chronic crier when it comes to watching movies and television. Um, but if something bad happens in my life, something real happens, uh, like my dad passed away last year, um, 
there were no tears because I had to be strong for everybody else. Uh, everybody else was having, um, you know, their moments, uh, but I couldn't do it. And that that's tough. Uh, you know, when your, your little brother is having a, a breakdown and really what he needs is somebody to cry with him and you can't because you've never been able to, you've never been allowed to, that's tough. Um, when, uh, you know, when my kids come to me and they want comfort, I'm all about that. I'll comfort them. I'll hold them, whatever they need. Um, but to cry with them, very, very hard for me throw on a really sappy episode of some TV show. Uh, and it's the exact opposite. My kids are like, dad, what, what's going on? Why, why is this upsetting you? And I've got tears running down my face. Uh, it's, it's a very weird dichotomy. That's interesting. It's like, that's the, those are the safe places for you to be able to express where yeah. crying is, is really, it's such a relief. It's just an act of relieving the tension in a way, but when it comes to the personal losses, the things that really hit home, maybe those things continue to cast you into that caregiver role. Whereas with the TV shows, it's like, oh no, this is safe. I don't have to take care of anybody right now. I can, this is my spot where I can let it out. Absolutely. And I think, oh, I, I don't think I'm unique in that. I think a lot of people turn to things like uh, sad movies or sad TV shows or sad music to kind of allow that emotion to, to wash over them for, for at least a little bit, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, I didn't, I completely agree with that. I'm, I'm kind of the same way or the only place where I feel safe, just crying my eyes out, honestly, is in the car by myself. I was actually just going to say that <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people go and lock themselves in their car, put on their, uh, I need a cry playlist and yeah. uh, either, drive around or head up to the bluffs or something where people aren't going to be looking at them and and just let it out mm -hmm. yeah and, and it's nice when people actually do have that safe space and unfortunately not everybody does so you know if we have it it's a good thing to sort of treasure that too absolutely 100 percent. and i mean it's nice to have a space where we can uh let those emotions out and um you know, cry by ourselves, but it's also uh, in a lot of ways, I think, beneficial to um, have that safe space uh, to include somebody else, whether it's a partner or a friend um, or a sibling where you're able to be yourself and let your emotions out, but feel like there's somebody there who can uh, not just understand, but physically comfort you if you need it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's part of a journey for a lot of people to be able to even say what they need to be with the person that can give them what they need, or even just to say, Hey, you know what, this doesn't work for me. I just need you to sit and be and accept. And, you know, it's, it's part of our, our journey, even just to develop trust with other people that if we show weakness, they're not going to think less of us or leave us. Yeah, and that's a very hard thing for a lot of people to do is is to show that vulnerability and to um, to trust that that weakness isn't going to be uh, a deal breaker 
in any sort of relationship, whether it's a, you know, uh, a, a, a partnership or, you know, siblings or friends. Um, for the most part, I think we all, we all want that in a friendship or a partnership, um, but none of us talk about it. Very few of us actually talk about it and say, hey, I need, you know, one of the things I need out of this relationship is to be able to cry with you and to feel safe with you. I need you to know that um, just because I'm crying for 20 minutes doesn't mean that I'm not going to be able to get up and go to work tomorrow, uh, that I'm not going to be here for you when you need me. Um, I think very few of us actually talk about that with anybody else. No, no, we don't. And you're right. A lot of it does go back to how we're raised and what our childhood experiences are like. And one of the conversations I probably have most often with parents is the parents that are afraid to cry around the kids. And I keep telling them, no, you need to cry around the kids because what you're doing is you're setting an example. You're setting an example that crying is a way of releasing emotion and that eventually you stop crying. And then you, you're, you know, it's just like when you're depressed and you're resting more, is it more productive for you to beat yourself up for resting or take the rest that your body needs so that tomorrow morning you can get up and go again? Exactly. Yeah. And it sounds like for you, you're really trying to set a different example. You're stopping that cycle. Uh, what kind of advice do you give to the kids? Um, we talk a lot in our family, whether it's uh, me and the kids or um, the boys, mom and them, we talk a lot about emotions um, because we have, uh, of my three boys, two of them are pretty emotionally driven. One's still, uh, my youngest is definitely emotionally driven as well, but he's a little bit different in that he tends to feed off of the, the bigger boys emotions. Um, but we talk a lot about how it's okay to have these emotions. It's okay to have these big emotions. It's what you do with them that really matters. Um, you know, if you're feeling angry, you need to explore why, why you're angry. You need to, um, and sometimes that anger needs to explode out of you somehow. Um, so we've started exploring getting, using that anger to fuel, um, pushups, you know, something a little <laughs> bit more constructive yeah. than, um, you know, grabbing your brother by the throat and yelling at him. Um, and we talk about the, the need to, to cry and just let the release, uh, of crying out, um, because it seems that, you know, as, as we're kids, uh, it's okay to cry in front of other people. Um, but as we get a little bit older, that being okay goes away. Um, so I try and encourage my kids and just let them know that, you know, no matter what, um, if you need to cry, if you need to let it out to feel better, I'm here. You know, you can cry in front of me. You can cry in front of mom. Uh, you will never be um, chastised or teased for having emotions because um, what you feel is what you feel. They're never right or wrong. Um, 
but you need to let it out and uh, and don't be afraid to let it out because if you bottle stuff up um, that's when your anger explodes out of you and you know you need to uh, go and punch the heavy bag or or something like that but if you talk it out if you start dealing with these emotions when you start feeling feeling them then we can all work on it together Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that example that you're setting for them. You are not shaming, you know, the natural expression of anger. It doesn't have to be all about crying, but if you got to cry, it's perfectly acceptable. It's just, just the same thing. And, you know, just creating an environment where this is so normalized that they're far less likely to struggle, struggle with it into adulthood. Well, and yeah, and that, that really needs to be um, how it happens. Uh, let's face it, a lot of us as adults uh, are, are pretty messed up by how we grew up um, and, and what we were taught. And those of us with kids or raising young kids, it's kind of our job to, to stop that cycle. Um, there's a lot about me that, uh, a lot about my past that I'm not proud of, and I'm not sugarcoating it with my kids when they ask me about it or when it looks like they're going to be um, heading down uh, a path that I've already been down more than happy to talk to them about it and, and make them realize that you know this isn't the way uh, a good person acts uh, you know you being emotional and uh, having anger all good things because when you bottle it up, that's when things explode out. Uh, and if we don't put a stop to it as parents now, it's just going to continue the cycle. And we can have these conversations a million times over as adults. But if we don't start having these conversations with our kids as well, then uh, the, the adults are just going to keep having these conversations and keep having these issues as time goes on. Mm -hmm. I, you know what, I just, I want to thank you for being so open. I mean, just your story and your, your perspective is so compelling. And I think it's really, really valuable for people to hear even just how, again, you're, you're trying to learn for yourself. You're trying to understand the connections between the past and the present and uh, the way that, the way that we're shaped when we're young and how that affects us now. And, and, really just what you're trying to do for your children in the future. It's, it's wonderful stuff. So I just want to say thank you so much for sharing and being so open and, uh, and coming on this podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Linda. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks so much. And yeah, take care. We'll talk again. Okay. Thanks, Linda. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye. Bye-bye.